1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel, at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Now we love to hear stories. Stories maybe told over dinner with friends, interviews, chat shows, biographies and autobiographies. Back in October, a number of us um, from Sunday morning gathered one afternoon to think about how we might share our own story of how we came to trust in the Lord Jesus as our saviour. A testimony, if you like, of his work 
in us. Well, this morning we're going to consider the very great testimony that is true for everyone who turns to Jesus and surrenders to him as Lord. It's a testimony we can say confidently each day in every season of life and even through great trials because it's a testimony rooted in the work of the Lord alone. And we find this testimony in our key verse this morning, which is chapter 7, verse 12, there on page 277. Chapter 7, verse 12. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. We're looking at chapters 4 through 7 this morning, and the narrative begins and ends in a place called Ebenezer. They're two different places, but they've got the same name, and they're hugely contrasting places. The Ebenezer of chapter 4 is a place of pride and defeat. Why has the Lord defeated us? cry Israel. But the Ebenezer of chapter 7 is a place of repentance and salvation. Till now, the Lord has helped us. And in these early chapters of 1 Samuel, we're seeing that even in great darkness, God has a salvation plan. We've seen that the foundation of this salvation plan is his word. And here we see that God's salvation plan is entirely his work. The Lord alone, achieving total victory over his enemies, rescuing a people from darkness to know his salvation. And it's a salvation that we'll see is received with real great assurance for all who bow before him in repentance. So we've got two points this morning. The Lord alone defeats his enemies. The Lord alone saves his people. So first, the Lord alone defeats his enemies. Israel in 1 Samuel is a nation in great darkness. There's a famine of God's word. And in this famine, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, mankind proudly deciding what we think's right without referring to our maker. And it leads to great trouble and distress and affliction. And by chapter 4, the darkness in Israel seems really thick. So if you turn back to chapter 4, Page 274, we'll spend a little bit of time there. And chapter 4, verse 1, the second half of verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So not only was there darkness in the land, but there are Philistines coming too. It's not looking good, and the shock of the battle comes in verse 2. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Israel is defeated. And in verse 3, they regroup and they ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And on one hand, that question seems quite positive. They're looking to the Lord. But actually, it is betraying massive pride. The background here is that the Lord made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai and he promised to bring them into the land and to bless them as his people. But this blessing depended on their obedience to his word. 
So it seems that Israel remember the Lord has made a covenant with them, but they're presuming arrogantly upon it. Why has the Lord defeated us? As if to say, what is God doing? He's supposed to bless us. And what they do next underlines this. So verse 3, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. In chapters 2 and 3, we said the person to watch was the boy Samuel. Well, this week, we need to watch the ark. Or as one author puts it, we need to do some archaeology. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the ark of the covenant was a gold-covered box. It carried the two stone tablets of the law, which the Lord had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So it symbolized his covenant. And so what Israel do here is they call for the ark, and they bring it in, and they expect it to bring salvation from their enemies. And at first glance, it looks a bit like superstition, like the lucky football socks. But it's not simply that they think the Lord's a lucky charm. This is a full-on attempt to manipulate God. See, the logic goes like this. God is supposed to deliver on his covenant. So let's get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into the camp. And then the Lord will have to save us. Because if he doesn't, he'll look like a loser who can't keep his promises. Imagine the teenager who's just passed their driving test and they arranged a road trip with their friends and they've planned the route, they've booked the accommodation and then the day before they asked mum and dad, can I borrow the car? Pressure tactics. Because if mum and dad don't say yes, they're the villains of the peace. And that's what Israel are trying to do to the Lord. And did you notice in verse 4, the narrator gives the the ark its full title. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. Just a reminder to the readers that Israel are playing games with the king of the universe. And when we discover that the ark arrives, it's even worse because who's there with it? The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas the religious leaders responsible for the famine of God's word in Israel who treat the Lord with contempt and have perpetuated darkness. This is not how to treat the Lord. And yet we see it all around us. Think of so many forms of spirituality today that offer a method to harness power. There are many religious versions. The internet is awash with step-by-step guides to get results, and guarantee success from God. And this is the same attitude that seems to flow through the House of Bishops' proposed new prayers to bless same-sex marriages. Prayers that begin with lines like, God of wonder and love, and God of grace. And so he is. But these prayers read like attempts to manipulate God. They boil down to saying, Because you're a God of wonder and love, because you're a God of grace, you had better bless us, whatever we ask, even if it's contrary to your word. These prayers arrogantly presume upon his help whilst denying him as Lord. And it's deeply offensive to him. And it's a great tragedy. 
Because when we come to Jesus Christ and recognize him as Lord of all our life, well, he gives us a far more wonderful salvation than we could ever imagine. There's profound good news and solid hope and glorious flourishing to be received in the gospel for anyone who will come to Jesus as Lord and live under his rule. Whoever we are, whatever our past, whatever our present circumstance, and whatever our sexual desires we experience. It is our great hope and prayer that we as a church remain and keep growing as a church family who supports and loves and serves everyone among us. And that we are a church family led by God's word alone, grounded in his grace alone, where the words of salvation can be heard by anyone and where faith, hope and love abound. Now, William has asked me to say that he, the senior staff, the wardens and the PCC have spent considerable time already discussing at St. Helen's response to likely decisions by the House of Bishops. These discussions have taken place with many other church leaders as well. And the intention is not to rush things. However, in due course, there will be a clear response. And if you'd like to think more about that particular issue, well, the Jude series on Sunday evenings would be a great place to go. But here in chapter 4, and indeed in God's word throughout the Bible, we find this clear warning where there is presumptuous pride. There is no assurance of salvation. Or as the writer John Woodhouse puts it, you cannot have Christ as saviour without having him as Lord. 4 verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Israel's arrogance was judged, and the ark was captured. And it looks like a total disaster for Israel. But amazingly, there are hints of God's salvation. Because this is the fulfillment of God's word of judgment on proud Eli and his sons. The man of God had told Eli that the Lord would bring down his house, and the sign would be that both his sons would die on the same day. And God had confirmed that word to Samuel and said, when it happens, he'll do something that make the ears of everyone in Israel tingle. Well, Hophni and Phinehas died. And could there be anything more ear-tingling than the ark of God being captured? And so Eli's house falls. And when he hears the ark is captured, old Eli falls off his seat and dies. And when Phinehas' wife hears the news, well, she tragically dies in childbirth. And in her last breath, she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory is departed from Israel. Literally, the glory is in exile. The Lord's left Israel, and it looks like disaster. But it's also reversal. Remember Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2, verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The Lord alone will overthrow presumptuous human pride. And then we see him at work in Philistia. And to begin with, it looks bad. 5 verse 1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. The Philistines think they've captured God. They've got the ark. 
And so they put this small box about this size in their house next to their highest god and his statue, which is apparently 15 meters high. The Lord might be useful. He could serve Dagon. And they are so confident as they defy him. One writer puts it that defying God is not something that looks particularly stupid. Those around us who defy God and rely on their human strength to get on without him seem to do all right. And so it's rare to meet a person who's afraid of defying God. A friend of me once told me of a conversation they'd had where someone just laughed at the thought that one day they might meet the Lord Jesus in judgment. They even said to my friend, they were pretty confident they could take Jesus if it came to it. No fear. Human pride. And then we read verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Far from the Lord serving Dagon, Dagon is compelled to bow before the Lord. And so they stand him back up. But the next day, it's even more emphatic. Verse 4, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Dagon is down again, and he looks like Humpty Dumpty. He's prostrate in submission. His head's cut off because he's been conquered, and his hands are cut off because he's powerless. Only the trunk of Dagon is left to him, which is why I put on your handouts, just a bod. Well, the contrast continues. Dagon has no hands, but all through chapter 5, we hear about the hand of the Lord. Did you see that? Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Verse 7, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Verse 9, but after they brought it round, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. Verse 11, the hand of the Lord was heavy there. Dagon has no hands, but the hand of the Lord is stretched out and defeats his enemies. And they can do nothing except play hot potato with the ark as city after city is defeated. And we're reminded again of Hannah's prayer. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And by verse 11, well, the Philistines are beaten and they are saying, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it might not kill us and his people. What, look, what started with fearless defiance, well, it ends in defeat. And they seem to realize it. If we look into chapter 6, they're really desperate to get rid of the ark. Chapter 6, verse 6. They say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away? And they departed. Now, the Philistines wanted to get rid of the ark. They realized that they were beaten. But they wanted to make sure this was no coincidence. So they devised a test, a test to see if it really was the Lord who had won the victory. A few weeks ago, I was talking to William about this passage, and he mentioned that a knowledge of weaning calves would be useful. Now, some of us may know all about this, but in the city, I guess many of us don't. It's probably not the main topic of chat on Monday morning. But it just so happens that this summer, I was on my uncle's farm, and of all things, I actually spent a morning with him weaning his calves. 
Um, little did I appreciate how useful that would be. And what we did was to gather them into a pen, separate the mothers and the calves into different pens, and then we took the calves off to one field and the mothers off to another because the instinct of the mothers is to reunite with the calves. And so for the next two days, they mooed pretty much constantly until they got used to the situation. Now, of course, the Philistines know how cows work, and so they plan a way of returning the ark that could only work if the Lord really was the one who works in power. It will confirm that it really was him who defeated them. And so they take two milk cows that have never pulled a cart and whose strong instinct is going to be to go back to their calves. And verse 9, they say, If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it's he who's done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Well, verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along the highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. It's a bit like the scene at the end of a film as the hero rolls off into the sunset, confirming a single-handed victory. The Lord alone defeats his enemies. And it's a picture of God's salvation. It's a picture of victory, a picture of a victory that supremely points to Jesus' victory over his enemies at the cross. Jesus, who was in the Garden of Gethsemane, left all alone in exile. Jesus, who was taken by the authorities and mocked by fearless opponents and then hung upon a cross to die. A moment of apparent defeat, like the ark in Dagon's temple, was in fact a moment of total victory. God's defiant enemies defeated once for all. In the letter to the Colossians, speaking of the cross, the apostle Paul writes, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Sin paid for, death defeated, and the devil disarmed. A glorious victory. And actually, these verses in 1 Samuel are full of the glory of the victory. The glory had been exiled, but the glory of the Lord was not dormant. That word for heavy, where the Lord's hand is heavy, well, the word heavy is the same root as the word for glory. It's a play on words. The Lord's glory was being revealed. In a few weeks' time in Central Focus, we'll be looking at John chapter 7. And there Jesus speaks of his coming death. And he says, for this purpose, I've come to his hour, this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus goes on to declare what the cross achieves. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. At the cross, in apparent defeat, great glory, great victory, great salvation. The work of the Lord, the work of a holy God. But the shock at the end of chapter 6 is that when the ark arrives back in Israel, there's initial rejoicing, but the people still don't know him. Did you notice that in 6 verse 19? The Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. 
At first glance, it seems a bit harsh, doesn't it, that these 70 men are struck down because they just looked at the ark. Until we remember that in Numbers 4, Israel have been told that they should not look at the holy things of the tabernacle even for a moment. And it seems really that the Lord has been patient. The ark has been welcomed and he's let them rejoice. But after the excitement dies down, well, they should be treating him properly. But instead, they just put the ark on a stone out in a field and treat it inappropriately. To him, he's still a power to be harnessed their way. So the Lord brings down the pride, the proud. He defeats his enemies. But what hope is there for proud sinners? Well, this is our second point. The Lord alone saves his people. Like in chapter 4, when Israel are faced with God's judgment, they initially ask a good question. Chapter 6, verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? It's a good question. But then they follow it up with a terrible answer. And to whom shall he go up away from us? They want to just send him away because he's not playing ball. But 7 verse 2 points to a change. From the day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years passed by, but at the end of it, there's a huge change. We go from get the Lord away from us to all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Well, what has happened? God's grace. If we look back over these chapters, chapters 4 to 7, we see these victories of God over his enemies are his glorious grace. Grace is a word that means undeserved kindness. God has given his people a great gift that they didn't ask for, and they certainly don't deserve, and they've contributed nothing towards. The Lord has gone ahead, providing everything for their salvation. He's brought down Eli's house and lifted the darkness perpetuated by Hophni and Phinehas. He's gone to the Philistines and defeated them without an Israelite even in view. And before all of this, well, he'd given them Samuel. Last week we saw the foundation of his salvation is his word. And so the Lord has acted in grace. He's given his word to lead his people into the salvation that he alone accomplished. And so it seems that over this 20 years, well, in Samuel's ministry, that word has been permeating hard hearts and it's been changing hearts. And it's brought his people to repentance so that his victory might be brought to bear on them. Repentance is to turn around. It's to stop going in one direction and to go 180 degrees the other direction. It's what you do if you've taken a wrong turn and you need to go back. And it transforms Israel. 7 verse 3 is a picture of their repentance. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. Repentance is to hear the word of God and to humble ourselves under it, to acknowledge our sin and turn away from it and turn to him for mercy and serve him alone. It might be that you're here this morning and interested in Jesus, but you just don't really want to call him Lord. 
For whatever reason, you don't want him to be king in your life. You don't want him to be, as it were, in the driving seat. Well, repentance is to give him the keys. It may well be costly. For Israel, it involved putting away Baals and Ashtaroth. And that was more than just tossing away a few statues. That would have meant stopping and withdrawing from the way of life that went with their pagan worship. But repentance is wonderful. Because when we turn to the Lord as king, we receive his salvation. Sin is paid for, death is defeated, the devil's disarmed, and one day will be destroyed. The Lord lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit in the place of princes. Chapter 7 such a contrast to chapter 4. When the Philistines come again, instead of proud presumption, the people confess their sin. We've sinned against the Lord. Instead of trying to manipulate God, they look to him in dependence on the ministry of his priest, Samuel. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, that he may save us. And the Lord answers, and he thunders, and his enemies are defeated. John 12, again, when Jesus spoke to his father of his commitment to suffer and die on the cross, he prayed, Father, glorify your name. And John records, then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. It's the sound of victory. Because the issue in these chapters is not, can we get God in the camp? Because God in the camp without repentance is dangerous. The question in these chapters is, am I in God's camp? It may be just for some of us here this morning, there's an area of sin in our lives where we're refusing Jesus' lordship. Not something that we're just battling with, we're all battling, but something where we're refusing Jesus' word and maintaining that he's fine with it. Well, rather than presume upon God's salvation, these chapters urge us to repent in dependence on Jesus and so know full assurance of God's salvation. These chapters present to us a great rushing river of grace as our maker holds out his salvation to us. And when we turn to Jesus and surrender to him as Lord, those waters rush over us. The salvation of God that he has accomplished once and for all is ours. And so we have a testimony we can say with great confidence. Each new day, whatever the circumstances, the preacher Charles Simeon put it like this. Let those who are yet living as without God in the world contemplate God's forbearance towards them. Let those who've been brought out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel survey the riches of divine grace displayed towards them. God's faithful people can say, till now the Lord has helped us. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones and the proud who deny Jesus as Lord yet presumptuously offer salvation without repentance, even if they're a bishop. Well, don't fall for it. The Lord alone defeats his enemies. The Lord alone saves his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you alone have defeated your enemies and you give us your word. 
and you lead us into your salvation. Please may we not presume on your salvation, but in humility surrender to your son Jesus as Lord and no assurance of that victory you've accomplished for us. Thank you that as your people, we can say each and every day, till now, the Lord has helped us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.